You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. I normally try to speak without notes because I get lost when I use notes, but this week um, I I had an incident where I thought last Sunday I had a spider bite on the back of my neck, but as things progressed, it turned out that I had uh, shingles. And um, so I, this week has been an unusual week and uh, didn't quite get the time to memorize in, so uh, you're just going to have to live with it. And uh, <laughs> Years ago, we added onto our house, and the only way we could afford it was a lot of volunteer help. And my good friend Bob Knight offered to do the wiring. And, uh, well, he offered to help me do the wiring, but since the only thing I knew about electricity was turning it on and turning it off, I did a lot of uh, pulling of wire and drilling of holes, and he did all the actual wiring. But one day, we were in the middle of uh, wiring one of the rooms, and he just out of the blue, he said, he says, you know, working with electricity is a lot like walking with God. He says, if you follow the rules... Electricity is safe and very helpful. If you don't follow the rules, it's deadly. And, and I thought that changes the way I look at the commands of God. That God's commands are not good advice or good suggestions or something God gives us to uh, control us but they just basically define reality. If, if I uh, do things God's way, I'm living in reality. I'm living with the way he's made things, and life goes well. Life works well. But when I break those laws, I don't break them, they break me. Not because God is angry or mad, but simply because this is the way life works. Sex is a lot like electricity. It can be very good, it can be very bad, depending on how we use it. We, uh, you know, when you look at the Bible, the Bible is not many stories, but it's one story. And it's a rescue story about how God rescues us from the mess that Adam and Eve got us into when they decided they would be their own God rather than listen to the God. And so as the story of the Bible progresses, we see the sin that we inherit from our first parents messing up more and more things as the whole world is infected and destroyed. And it's interesting, the Bible doesn't hide from sexual sin. It's very bold. In, 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 uh, we see sexual, um, oh, what's the word I'm wanting? I should look at my notes. <laughs> sexual violence of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
the sexual desperation of Lot's two daughters, or of, e, of, of Sarah giving her, her servant to her Abraham because she's so desperate to have a son, or sexual competition between Leah and, and Rachel as they both vie for attention from Jacob so they can have children even to the point that finally they get, so they give Jacob their servants in an attempt to get uh, uh, children through them. In fact, one time, Leah bought Jacob from uh, Rachel and uh, because he wasn't spending time with her. And the baby that was produced was called Isaacar, which means son of a whore. And of course, Jacob was the whore in that case. And so you have all this stuff going on in one family. And the family is from the Messiah is gonna come. And so it's, it's like, Sex is like electricity in the sense that it does all this. Today, we're not going to look at the negative side of sex, though. We're going to look at the positive side. What happens when we keep it within the rules? And we're going to look at uh, chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, sex for marriage and safe sex for unmarried. So let's pray and uh, see if I can get my head together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your ability to teach us and guide us. We pray that you'll teach us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing problems in the church that have been reported to him from people in the church. From chapter 7 on, Paul is answering questions from the church. The church has sent him a list of questions, and Paul begins to uh, answer these questions. And the first question he answers is verse 1, chapter 7. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, Paul is addressing these questions that he got from Corinth. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. To touch a woman was a Jewish euphemism meaning touch sexually. It was like when we say today, they're sleeping together, we don't mean they're taking a nap. And so the real question here is, is it good for a man not to have sex with a woman? That's the question. Now, this, one of the wonderful things about this chapter is that Paul elevates married and singleness together. Most cultures will elevate one or the other. In traditional cultures, it's marriage. And if you're single, you're treated like uh, there's something wrong with you. In our culture, it's more, it's good to be single. You can pursue your career. You can pursue your, uh, uh, your, your profession. And marriage is kind of an afterthought so far that, that, that married people are often called breeders because they're tied down to a family. But what Paul does is Paul elevates both as callings from God. And he talks about 
safe sex for marriage and safe sex for single. Let's see what he says about, about uh, singles, or marrieds. So is it good for a man not to have sex with a woman? Paul says yes, but because of immoralities, which refers to any form of sexual activity apart from the one man, one woman, one life that God commands. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Paul answers this question first for those who are married. Should a married man abstain from sex? And Paul says, absolutely not. Genesis says, God created us in his own image. Male and female, he created us. And said, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And Jesus adds, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So because God created sex, we were, we were sexual before we were sinful. The last thing a married couple to do is abstain from sex. However, because of the spiritual competition that was going on in uh, Corinth, we've already seen, there were some men and some women who thought it is more spiritual just to completely divorce yourself from the sexuality of our culture, and you were somehow more spiritual if you abstain from sex. And Paul says, cut it out. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her body, but the husband does. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Now this would have been a game changer for the Corinthians. The first part, the man has authority over his wife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it was a, it was a, 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 a male-dominated society. The man was the king of his home. A woman was under the authority of her father, and then she was under the authority of her husband. So this, nothing new about this. It was a typical patriarchal system. But when Paul says that the man does not have authority over his body, but his wife does, this was something brand new. Nobody had ever heard of this before. Paul says that married people refraining from sex doesn't make you more spiritual, but less. God's design is for the husband to fulfill his sexual duty to his wife and for the wife to fulfill the sexual duty to her husband. The husband lives to please his wife. The wife lives to please her husband because God has made you one. And that's what glorifying him looks like in a marriage. So is it good for a husband, for a man not to, uh, to abstain from sex? Paul says, yes, it's good unless you're married. Because the best defense against sexual immorality is an intimate sexual life in marriage. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourself to prayer. 
and come together again sexually so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I take from that that the problem in the Corinthian marriages wasn't that they were having sex too often. They were having sex too little. And Paul says, giving pleasure to your mate is so important that the only reason that you would stop temporarily is to devote yourself to prayer. Now, that's an excuse I haven't heard lately, you know. Just, well, I'd like to, honey, but I need to pray. And then he says, then come back together again, lest Satan tempt you through your lack of self-control. These instructions are just as revolutionary in first century Corinth as they are today. In our culture, as you know, we've been told by philosophers and then by professors and then by the media and then by the weird guy across the street that your essential nature is sexual. More than anything else, you're a sexual person and therefore to restrain yourself from any kind of sexual activity will hurt you. It will make you mean and unpleasant to be around. And therefore, anything that gives you pleasure, as long as there's consent, is on the table. And Paul says, that's just not true. One thing our culture's view of sex and the Corinthians' view of sex have in common is that sex is all about me, about my pleasure my ego, my power. And Paul says, no, God's view of sex is sex is all about your partner. It's all about giving your partner pleasure. It's all about giving your partner joy because you'll find that if you love them the way I love you, it will give you great pleasure to give them great pleasure. That's what he says. Now, because we're Americans, we all like a little more information. We'd like a sex manual here and uh, like to know, okay, so how often and what can you do? And, and God just doesn't do that. Paul just says, live to give your partner pleasure. That's the rule here. It's, people are very different when it comes to sexual desire. And sexual desire can be impacted by newborns, uh, work projects, hassles at work. Uh, and then as you get older, or as you become less attractive, it can impact your, your sexual desire. Those things are irrelevant. What matters is you are living to give your partner joy and pleasure and working that out. That's the point. Physical desire goes along with the emotional desire. You can't, God is not honored by just mechanically going through the motions. And so if there is not a desire in your heart to be intimate with your mate, then that's where you need to get together and talk about it. And find, is there resentment? Is there... Uh, guilt is there 
uh, hurt feelings? What, what is keeping us from coming together? Because if I'm walking with God, I will be pursuing my mate and giving her pleasure. So, should married people abstain from sex? No. Good, you got that part. <laughs> you can't put out the fire, you can just keep it in the fireplace, and, and that's uh, the idea. And what about singles? Let's talk about singles here. What if you're not married? Paul speaks to the singles now in 1 Corinthians 7, 6. But this, these instructions about the vital place of sex and marriage, I say by way of concession, not of command. Paul is not saying that every person should get married. He's saying if you're married, then you need to be sexual. Um, yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. Paul was not married, he was single, uh, and it gave him great freedom to devote himself fully to the gospel. Yet Paul knows that's not God's call for every person. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this matter, manner and another in that. Some Christians are given by God the gift of marriage. Some are given the gift of singleness. They're equal gifts because they're from God. So what do, do singles do? So Paul speaks to the single Christians in Corinth, and he says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them to remain even as I am, that is to stay single. And Paul will explain why it's that to their, that's to your advantage later on in this chapter. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So what does Paul mean? If they do not have self-control, let them marry. I'll tell you what I don't think he means. I don't think he means if you can't keep from sinning sexually, get married. Because God gives every Christian the Holy Spirit and the self-control of the Holy Spirit. And if you cannot obey God when you're not married, you'll not be able to obey him when you are married. Otherwise, God wouldn't say, you shall not commit adultery because you would never have a desire for anybody else. So I don't think Paul is saying, if you're not able to, to live an obedient life sexually, get married. That's not what he's saying. So what is he saying? I think what he's saying is it's, it's got to do with contentment. This is lost. It is better to marry than to burn. If you're happy and content single, you'll be sexually tempted once in a while. But if you're overall, you're happy and content single, then thank God and be single. On the other hand, if your sexual or romantic desire, your longing for companionship, your, your desire to be with somebody is so overwhelming, it's distracting, then get married. Does that make sense? I think that's what it's got to do with contentment, not obedience. I know today there's, we've got marrieds and singles, and some of you who are single want to be married, and some of you who are single don't want to be married. And then there's another group who are married and want to be single, but Jeff can talk to them next week. <laughs> but how do you know if you're single 
whether you should pursue marriage or just be single. That's the question. I, and I, all I can do is I'll give you my experience. I was single all the way through my 20s, working with a crew at Cal, and, and I loved it. I, it was great. I had plenty of time to, to hang out with students and, and uh, minister to them. In fact, I got kind of proud about it, that the other, the other guys were, and gals were falling to marriage, but I was being staying, hang in there and being strong and, and everything like that. Um, I kind of ignored the idea that I was always had my eye out looking for some girl uh, if she would come along and always was thinking about a girl. Finally, my two best friends got married. And uh, I was the last one left. And I began to think maybe I should look and see if marriage might be something God would have me to do. So I went to a friend of mine, an older guy, had been married for quite a while, and I said, do you think can you think of any reason that it might be good for me to get married? And he immediately said, absolutely. He said, you have gone as far as you can as a single man. You need somebody to love. You need someone to take care of. You need someone to lay your life down for. You need to learn how to love. And what he didn't say is you are incredibly selfish and self-centered and self-absorbed. And, uh, but that was his point. And it was like hearing that turned something in my head and I stopped seeing marriage as something bad that I needed to avoid so I could serve the Lord. And rather as something God was going to use in my life to make me more like Christ. And it was about that time that I met Laurie and we began to date and uh, one thing led to another. But that's another story. Um, if you're single, how do you know whether to stay single? Are you content? Are you content? Because if you're content to be single, that's God's gift to you. And enjoy it. And use your time to serve the Lord. If you're married, if you're, if you're not single, and there's longing to be married, then get married. It gets complicated in our culture because our culture emphasizes singleness so much. People under the age of 44 are predominantly single. They're predominantly living with each other without getting married. They are... Uh, fulfilling their sexual needs in a way other than marriage. And so if you're a Christian and you're not married, are you content not being married or are you sinning in an area to fulfill the needs other than fulfilling them the way God has them? Because you're not glorifying God if you're living with somebody or you're having scattered affairs or you're addicted to porn. There is a, and we're going to look at it in a minute, there's a, a theme in the Bible that our natural sinful temptation is to look for things from the world to satisfy what we look, should look for God to find. 
And we grow as Christians as we repent of those halfway, those wrong ways to fulfill things and turn to God for his. Look at what James says here. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scriptures speak to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace, greater than the world. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Here's James' point. You can look to the world to satisfy your needs, and it won't work out well. Or you can look to the Lord and repent of all of your attempts to meet your own needs your own way and depend wholly on God. And as you do that, his will for your life will become clearer and clearer. And in this area, if he wants you to get married, he will lead you to get married. Now, that's kind of the way we become Christians, isn't it? Because we become Christians when we realize that we can't save ourselves, that we need a Savior, that God sent Jesus to become a man and to live the life we were unable to live so that we could be credited with his righteousness when we put our faith in him. He sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, bearing the punishment for our sins so God is free to forgive us, and to rise from the dead so that we can rise from the dead. And a Christian is simply a person who asks Jesus to come into their life, be their Savior, and is born again. From that point onward, we're living a life of continual repentance as we learn more and more about how still attached to this world we are and how depending on these things that, that God says they'll ruin your life, we are. And we repent of those, and as we repent of those, then God leads us in a, in a new way. So I guess what I would say to you today, if you're married be married. Put yourself into it 100%. Live to make your wife, your husband happy. If you're single, be single. Devote yourself wholly to serving Christ. And if you're single and you're wondering if I should be married or not, repent of all the areas of your life where you're kind of meeting those needs in an ungodly way and turn to God and trust him to lead you in the way he wants you to go. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and I pray you'll take uh, the mess that I just made and help us to see what you want us to learn. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.